My guest this week is Uncommon NASA. He's a rapper, producer, he runs Uncommon Records, and he's engineered and produced uh, many other well-known hip-hop artists throughout the years. I thought it was a great interview, man. The art this week, as always, is by Mike Riley. Check him out at MikeRileyComics.com. And we're being hosted by Splice Today. Check them out at SpliceToday.com. Let's, Let's go, go in. I was born um, in Patchogue, Long Island, which is okay. way out there. And uh, at a very young age, when I was six, my family moved to Staten Island. Uh, and they moved to multiple places on Staten Island for all kinds of economic reasons. Uh, but yeah, I basically I would say I grew up on Staten Island. I'm, I still live there to this day. Okay. And what is like? I have no sense of what Staten Island is like. Mm. Uh, Staten Island is what we call the forgotten borough. Um, it is the fifth borough to most people. Um, I live in a neighborhood called St. George. Um, that's where I really put down my final roots. Uh, bought a home after a, a million years of working. And um, luckily for me, the reason I bring that up is like St. George, the reason I was willing to, to make that kind of commitment to that area is it is walkable to the ferry. And what most of my friends and people that don't know me don't realize is like, I can get to downtown Manhattan in 30 minutes. Yeah, I can get yeah. into Brooklyn in 60 minutes or less. Like, I'm practically in the city. Like, it's nothing. You know, like I live in one of the only, I live in the only urban sector of Staten Island. Uh, which is dominantly a suburban place. Um, but, uh, you know, I live in a place that, you know, if I put a bag over your head and woke you up on the corner of my block, you would not be surprised if I told you you were in Queens or the Bronx or Brooklyn or anywhere yeah, else, you know. totally. And that's sort of the what my area is like. Um, you know, but, yeah, I guess to get deeper into it, I, it is sort of a, it's a dominantly suburban place, but, you know, I mean, there are... Like I said, I live in the only urban sector, and what I mean when I say that is it's a place where the storefronts sort of reach the street. You know what yeah. I mean? Where you're walking, it's all walkable, there's a train there, you know what I mean? It's it's The rest of Staten Island is sort of set up as like a lot of mini malls and strip malls and stuff like that, and even areas that, you know, there's a distinction between areas that, you know, are a little bit you know, sketchy or a little bit harder to grow up in, like areas like Mariners Harbor, Park Hill, or Stapleton, um, even those areas aren't set up the way Brooklyn's set up, per se. You know, it's still sort of parking lots and strip malls and, and some suburban houses. It's just, you know, whether it's a it's a good place to, to grow up or not, um, good in quotes. Um, but I grew up, um, my parents moved around a lot because we had a lot of different financial problems. Um, but I lived, I, I had a very unique experience. I wrote about it on a song called Background Check. Uh, for a record called uh, Landed the Way It Is. And um, my experience was unique because I grew up in, for the most part, suburban Staten Island, but my parents never owned a home on Staten Island. It was always rented 
renting from somebody else that had a home. Yeah. So it was what you'd call a side door apartment. And um, so the person that owned the side door apartment would live in the, the front of the house and you would basically live in the back of the house. And they did that for years, and I probably lived in, like, four of those situations. And mm. so I grew up, like, you know, really broke, you know, at times really poor. And I was going to schools with people that were, you know, swimming pools and, you know, beach parties. And you know what I mean? Like the real suburban Americana-type life. Um, so it was it was interesting. It was, it was interesting for me to—it's sort of what drew me to hip-hop is I, I really identified with— the, the struggle of the people that I was listening to. Yeah. Like, that was where I turned to identify with people because I couldn't identify with most of the kids that were around me. Um, but, you know, when it came to, like, you know, going to bed hungry or, or you know, really trying to figure out where the next dollar was coming from, like, that was in a lot of the hip-hop I was listening to, and that's mm. what drew me to it. That's where, that's where hip-hop is such a beautiful thing is you can really find the commonality in in a lot of um in a lot of the music no matter what your diverse past might be right right and what was the music like um i listened to i mean you know chuck d and public enemy were huge early influence yeah um you know um i listened to a lot of gangstar uh guru was definitely one of my favorites you know uh you know, I tell people I thought Guru was the first rapper to die that I, I... I can't say that I didn't... Obviously, I felt something for all these different MCs that have passed away. But when Guru died, it was, like, really heavy. It was. Like, man. I was down for a couple of days. Um, you know, I still feel bad even thinking about a guy, like, passing away at a time that could have been the prime of his career. Like, I read an article recently about Guru where they were talking about how Guru, at a certain point in his career, I think, felt a certain kind of way because he... I don't know if he felt a certain kind of way, if that's the right way to say it, but Guru was fully aware of his age. Um, Guru, a lot of people don't realize, Guru was older than DMC. Yeah, like, okay. yeah, DMC. yeah, yeah. So, like, Guru, at one point, I, I don't remember the publication that said it, but it was an interesting quote where they basically were like, Guru was the oldest, most relevant MC of his era, like, yeah. of his time, because nobody really identified Guru with the styles that were happening from other people his age. Because right, he kind of, right. I guess, kind of came to New York a little bit after that wave, you know, from Boston. And so, I mean, it's a super insp- it's inspirational for me, you know, as somebody that is trying to make these moves in my 30s and trying to really identify with, you know, people of all ages as a as a 35-plus-year-old person, you know, looking back on somebody like Guru is even more inspiring now. Totally, totally. Yeah, the- and like, it always seemed like just like a really unique person, you know, very yeah. individual. He's kind of like you know. your uncle, you know. Yeah, <laughs> he had that kind of approach on the mic. And I, I did an interview with somebody recently, and somebody said that about my music, and I was like, ah, oh, that's pretty cool. Mm. Like, because that's it's a good thing to be, you know, as long as you're the smart uncle, not, right? Not right. the drunk uncle. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and like, how did you start making music? Um. You know, I uh, I really loved music my whole life, and I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, I took an opposite path of a lot because I, I didn't go to college. I had no intention of ever going to college. Uh, my grades were, in New York, my, my grade average when I graduated was a 67, mm. which is the equivalent of, like, 
I don't know what, you know, it's exactly passing. Like, passing yeah. is a 65. I don't know how that translates to letter grades. So I didn't have the grades to go to any college. I had no interest in going to a community college. I didn't want to do any more high school. And uh, and I certainly didn't have any money to get me into anywhere. Yeah. And so I went to recording school. Uh, I went to IR in New York City, uh, Institute of Audio Research. And I went right into recording in recording studios. I uh, I started out... As far as music, to backtrack a little bit, I when I was in sixth grade, I had an accident in school where I was chasing another kid because he fucked with me, and I was tripped by another kid, and I fell, and my head got cracked open. And so I was bleeding everywhere, and the teacher came running in. It was like in between class shifts. I was like, oh, my God. And I had to go to the hospital. And years later, when I was 16, the case was finally decided sued the school district mm. and um i i was awarded you know which is a meager sum for what happened i mean i was rewarded like five grand and yeah. i uh you know after the lawyer fee and everything else you know you're left with like 3400 bucks or whatever and um i took all of that money when i was 17 well actually i, I should i didn't have the right to touch it until i was 18 so as soon as i turned 18 I took all that money and I bought two turntable, two techniques turntables. I bought uh, a DJ mixer. I bought huge, like park rocking fucking speakers for God knows what reason. Yeah. I bought uh, a big ass like power amp to power those fucking things, um, and I had the whole kit because at the time in my head it was more of an era where like if you, I wanted to be a producer, I wanted to make beats, but I felt like you had to know how to DJ first. And that was sort of that era of hip hop. Yeah, you did at that point. That was how you cut your teeth. You didn't really get to make beats until you knew the music well enough. And what time is this? This is 1996. Okay. This is like 96. Um, You know, yes, that was 1996. And um, you know, by 98, 99, I had some shitty little samplers that I because at that point now I was like working and saving my quarters and, and nickels for, yeah. for equipment. I didn't have this, this ridiculous payout for no reason. And um, I had I started with a Yamaha SU-10, which is a shitty little sampler, and I had an Elise's, um SR-16, a shitty little drum machine, and I had a, a four-track tape, and I would make beats that way. And... Um, it was it was an interesting time, and then after a while, my, my, my future wife, my current wife... Um, you know, just surprised me and bought me a 2000 XL. Nice. So I've been very fortunate in terms of like, you know, I've worked hard for a lot of things, but in my early days, I was fortunate that I had people and situations that sort of, you know, coded things in because, you know, it wasn't like I could just reach into my allowance. Right. right. The allowances didn't exist for me. Right. There was none of that. There were the good thing is there are no chores either. So, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, um, so that's how I started making music. And, and, you know, by 2000, I had the 2000, 2001, I had the XL and I started making beats and I started working at Ozone, which was a recording studio in downtown Manhattan. And I was assistant engineer for, you know, sessions with Saul Williams, Mike Ladd, Company Flow, Anti-Pocket Sordium, Mr. Liff, and how did that Rob get Sonic, all that stuff. How did that get started? Um, I got a gig there because I had a copy of the end to end burner CD. What is that? uh, It's a company float single. Oh, okay. And so on the, on that CD, there was a song, um, called workers needed. 
and workers needed listed the address to send like battle raps over one of the company flow beats. Oh, okay. And I remember taking that as sort of like pre-internet. There wasn't really, you had to like call a phone company or look up in the phone book <laughs> to get like information on these addresses. And I, I had um, the address and I knew the name of the company and I tracked them down and I, I made a phone call over there. I was able to get the ad, get the number from the address or whatever, and do the do the homework. And I called up and I said, "Do you guys need an intern? I want to want to work for you guys." And they were like, "Yeah, we're looking for an intern." Total, you know, totally random. Yeah. I faxed. It's a fax machine. <laughs> I faxed over a a resume, and um, and all of a sudden I was interning at Ozone. And, you know, I was I started doing some of my own recordings in terms of my own stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, on off hours. But, I mean, you know, I mean, everything started there as far as, like, I mean, I was already very adept and, and in touch with the indie scene in New York as a fan. I was going to shows. I was going to Wetlands and SOBs and all these, like, uh, tramps, all these great venues from that time, New York and Poets Cafe, all that stuff. You know, there was an era in between 97, 98, 99, where, like, if you showed up to see any indie rap group from New York, there would be a line outside. Like, right. Down right. the block, you know. And these are, this is long before anyone was signed or important or anything. It was just hip-hop that brought people out that deep mm. in New York, of all places. Yeah. And um, so I knew a lot of this stuff. And, and I, I, you know, I got introduced to, like, Anti-Pop and Mike Ladd by working at Ozone. Um, musically, I mean. And, and yeah. physically. But, um but I, uh, I, you know, I got working there because I was a huge fan of Company Flow as a, as a you know, teenager, and um, you know, other people came through. I mean, I remember they they did sessions with like Saya from Saya and Yeshua, and um, I, I wasn't in that session, but they had just finished that session before I got there, and I was just like, what? You know, I was like so blown away by like how many of the people that. I had 12 inches that I bought from Fat Beats were actually recording at this place. Right, right. And not a lot of people knew about it, and, and that's where I cut my teeth. You know, I assisted. I, I never mixed anything at Ozone. I wasn't at that level. Um, but and, that, and, and, you know, back to what I was saying about my own production, that's, that's where I started laying down tracks to 8 at and D88 or whatever they had there and started my first recording sessions as a nervous... 19 year old you know mm. trying to figure out what the fuck i want what i want to rap about you know? and like so what do you mean like like you would have your own time in that studio sure. yeah 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 i would yeah. have off hours i would bring in my mp i would lug it in from staten island uh luckily this place was uh was in downtown manhattan so it wasn't that bad and i would set it up and, and set up the mic and i was in a group called the presence at the time and um you know um we would record the tracks you mm. know we we recorded our first demos uh which eventually led into an ep called advanced bloodbath um which i re-released years later in 08 but it originally came out in 01 it was like only sold at sandbox automatic and you know one of the things that you know others have mentioned i mean that era was different you know i mean people bought music then right i mean i sold over 100 copies of a cdr with a a cover that we made at Kinko's, right, right, at at one website, right. You know, right, right. like that's silly. You know, you, you'd never do that today. Yeah. Nobody could do that today. You know, as as an unknown. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, if some famous person wanted to do that, they'd be fine. But like coming up, like this is your first thing, and people listen to it, and they're like, "This is weird enough for me. Cool." And they just buy yeah. a CD, and all of a sudden it shows up at their house. It's awesome. Yeah, that was my beginnings. You know. 
And like, how did this group? Did did you do a lot with that group, the president? I did. Um, you know, we did the Advanced Bloodbath EP. Um, we did. Uh, it was really an album, but we marketed it as an EP at the time called Members Only. And that was the first release of Uncommon Records, which was my label. It okay. Was 2004. And then in 05, we released the full length, the, the true full length, uh, called Common Man's Anthems. After that, we did a few singles. And, uh, you know, I think, I guess it's fair to say at this point, since I haven't spoken to him in four years, that I guess we grew apart as people. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. It's hard to really say. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, I was a, a, a Sirius Minor was the, the other rapping member of the group. Yeah. Um, you know, we had a guitar player that was officially in the group at one point. Short Rock was officially in the group as oh, our nice. DJ. But we never got to the point of, like, you know, we just couldn't get together after Common Man's Anthems. We did a few singles. We did a single called Absentia. We were working on a follow-up called We, Wanted the Win- uh, we Want the Winter. Um, and it was kind of at that point where, like, we were going to bring Short Rock in on a lot of the recordings, and we just never really did it because, you know, I think the thirst for... The music thing kind of faded with Cirrus, mm. and uh, it's not all that surprising, um, but I wanted to keep going, and, and I, that's why I'm still here today. You know? Yeah, but, yeah. You know, working in groups is hard, even with just one other person, for the most part. I mean, just, it, it's it's still like herding cats. Totally. You know, you've got to work around these schedules. Touring is about, can I get off of this job? Can I get off of that job? Yeah. I can't do this then. It's just a pain in the ass. Yeah. And I, I always wanted to be a part of something bigger, you know. Um, and that's why I was in a group for a long time. I wanted to be something bigger than myself. That's why I did a label, the way that I did it for ten years, as far as just signing other people. I always wanted to have that crew that people respected. But over time, the business changed to a point where that wasn't really what people were looking for anymore. People were looking to identify one to one with an artist. And that's a huge thing today. I, I think it goes under the radar. But, like, as soon as I start stepping out and saying and approaching music like, this is my music and this is from me, people started to listen a lot more than mm. when I was like, hey, here's my group and here's my label. And it just, you know, I was very passionate about it. But I don't think I sounded like that to myself when I approached people. But I think people hear it that way. You know? Right, right, right. And I think that that kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, like, as far as, like, there is this thing with, like, New York acts where I just feel like they're, like, somewhere else. They're, like, far away, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though, like, we're not far from New York, like, mm-hmm. it seems like you've, like, presented yourself in this way where you're, like, really approachable mm-hmm. or something like sure. that. Sure. I mean, I pride myself on that, but that's also natural. It's not something that I, you know, purposefully set out to do. I mean, I, you know, working for other labels and, and, you know, I I kind of was the guy that wanted to listen to the demos, you know, like I was like, oh man, give me the shoebox. I want to see what's going on, you know, and we dig through and I I found relationships with people through that. I mean, I found, there's a producer that I worked with a bunch of times uh, from Berkeley, um, Dig Dug, Oh, and uh, he, uh, I tell this story uh, sometimes, but uh, he goes by Agartha Audio. I put out a couple of releases of his in the mid-2000s. And I literally found his CD in a shoebox in the back of, like, a Def Chuck's office. Mm. No one listened to for months. Right, I was like, right. this guy's awesome. And, you know, I, that, and that's how I built the label off of, like, finding demos and finding people on MySpace and stuff like that. 
And, you know, people would contact me, I would contact them, and, and the relationships that were solid grew, and the relationships that weren't didn't. And, you know, that's sort of where I am. But I've always been open-minded. I mean, I you know, when I was a fan buying 12 inches at Fat Beats, it didn't matter where the 12-inch came from. Yeah. I didn't judge it by that. I would buy stuff from ABB all the time. I would buy stuff from Brick all the time. You know, plus I would be buying Fondalum and Ruckus stuff. Like, none of that stuff mattered, you know? Right, like, right, it, right. It just didn't, you know? Well, what what was it that you did with uh, Def Chucks? You, you, like, you in- engineered a engineered lot of a stuff. bunch of their stuff, yeah. you know? I worked with them for, uh, for a number of years from their inception until about 05. Um, and, you know, I mean, I mixed... Cold Vein and uh, well, large portions of Cold Vein. Um, I mixed all of Fantastic Damage and all of Bazooka Tooth and blah blah blah. You know, yeah. and the lots of records. You know, um, and was and that, that like? Sort of what I, and I got involved in that through working at Ozone because like, yeah. it's like Company Flow had worked at Ozone, so that's how I ended up kind of carrying over with that. And was that your like to some degree your day job at yes, that point? Very much. That's so. awesome. It was yeah. you know that was what I did. That was yeah. what I did to pay my bills. I mean, I enjoyed being there because I loved the music at, at a certain point. Um, you know, as you grow, you want to do your own thing. And I think that was very evident with me. Um, you know, by 04, I had started on Common Records. And working there, you know, you, 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 working at any label, but working there, in my experience, you, you will see things that are done correctly, and you'll see things that you wouldn't do. And... I really wanted to sow my own oats as far as being a label owner and as far mm. as being a musician, and that became really important to me. And, um, you know, there were different offers over different times where I could have done a lot of different things with that label. Um, there were other things that were never going to happen for me as a musician with that label, too. But that being said, I wanted to do my own thing. Yeah. And I wanted to answer to myself. I didn't want. As a musician, I mean. Right. I didn't want to answer to anyone else, and I wanted to do my own thing. It was very important to me at that time. And um, so I started on Common, and eventually things sort of went um, askew at Jooks for, <laughs> for me as far as being an employee. And, um, and you know, we went our separate ways, and you know, Jooks kind of hung on for a couple more years. And I went on and started this label, and... Went back to school for broadcasting, um, started working in radio, and now, uh, you know, I still work in, uh, in broadcasting yeah. uh, professionally, and, and I've worked myself up to the point where I, I do have the ability to tour and do my own music and, and you know, really be prolific at it. And like, wh- That took a long time to get to, though. What is it that you do in, in broadcasting? Um, I work um, for a company that does stuff as far as like live broadcasting for the internet. Okay. Um, so I won't say exactly who I work for, but um, I work up for a company that does a lot of live events per year. Like, yeah. if you're watching a live event on the internet, it probably has come through my Like hands. a show or something? Um, mostly really? sports. Yeah, you know, okay. So. Oh, cool, cool. And you do your own podcast as well. Uh, yeah, right? I mean, I do. I, do um, I, I had done a podcast for a number of years uh, called Uncommon Radio. Yeah, and uh, I interviewed all kinds of people, and uh, it started as sort of a solely internet, uh, excuse me, interview show, like mm-hmm. how this is, and uh, then it moved on to me sort of doing some interviews and sort of just playing some music. Yeah, and now it's in its third phase, probably the last iteration of it, <laughs> um, but it'll be around for a lot longer, I, I hope. Um, on Common Radio Live, which is a, a live broadcast of pretty much the same show, except now. I've expanded it to include Samurai Banana. There's a live DJ element to it. It sounds, to me, I hope, 
like a traditional underground, you know, radio show. Right. Like right. it's New York based. People when they tour, they come by. If they have time, they can come by and, and stop at the show. We try to do it. We do the show live almost every time. Actual live, like Thursdays, eight o'clock Eastern. Yeah. Uh, it's Bonfire Radio is the uh, the kind of uh, network that we're on. Um, you can find them at bon- bonfireradio.com. And um, you know, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's dope to actually go to a physical place that's not where I'm at. Right. Right. And right. like have to be there at eight o'clock. And if you're not there at eight, you're already on the air. You know, you walk in and the banana is toiling around trying to figure out how to pass time until I can start talking. Yeah. And that's awesome, you know, because as a listener, like, I grew up listening to shows like that. It was cool. Like, it was real. Um, podcasts are awesome, though, too. I mean, I, I love the whole element of being able to, you know, as a as a consumer of them, like, to sit and listen to a podcast and totally. have these things. It's almost like listening to books read you know what i mean where you can yeah devour them in that manner but doing a live radio show is a lost art form and uh there's just not many people doing it right now particularly in new york there's not anyone else doing what we do mm. as far as i know yeah you know? yeah what what happened to the like what's like the station that like stretch and bobito stretch on? and bob were on wkcr okay 9.9 um and that's you know pretty much my i mean that was my radio Heroes, You're right? I mean, right. I grew up listening to that show religiously, and, and I sometimes I'll talk about like the, the the cycle that used to be in the '90s scene in New York was you would hear something on Stretch and Bob, you would go to Fat Beats and see if it was on vinyl, and if it was, you'd buy it, and then you'd get a flyer at Fat Beats that would be like, "There's a show going on," and then you'd go to the show. Yeah, and this was a cycle that went around and around and around, and you know, at the show, the DJs played new stuff. That just came out, yeah. You know, yeah. before the show would start, and you'd see these artists for the first time, and it was a beautiful, not it wasn't purposeful. It was just the way that things evolved. And Stretch and Bob and other shows were out there too. I mean, you know, there I can go on and on for with different underground radio shows. Oh but, yeah, yeah. But uh, Stretch and Bob were on KCR, and uh, eventually they they split, and they started doing like every other. Thursday, like, was a Stretch show and then the Bob show. Oh, right, Stretch right, show right. and the Bob show. It was CM Family, and I think Stretch just kept his as Stretch's show. But um, I grew up adoring those shows. Yeah. Like, uh, I, man, I, I was so inspired by those shows, just the, the comedy that they brought. You know, sometimes I'll catch myself, and I'll, you know, doing my show, and I'll be like, all right, I'm, I'm just imitating these guys <laughs> too much. I need to be myself on this show. Because it was very inspirational in terms of radio and, and, and broadcast. But, um, you know, shout out to those guys. That's, yeah. That's a big portion. I mean, I caught on in the late 90s when the show was mostly indie. You know, a lot of the stuff that's celebrated, well, celebrated is the wrong word, but a lot of the stuff that's talked about with that show now is like footage of like Eminem or Biggie or Nas or Wu-Tang or whatever, like in studio doing live performances. And that's cool because they did get those people up there before they blew up, so to speak. Right. But when I was coming up, like, it was Company Flow and Breeze Bruin and Mr. Live and, you know, just, I, you know, all the Pumpkinhead, all those dudes, you know, um, would be up there. And that, to me, was a lot more of what I got from that show. It was just this indie power. Right, you know, right. New York. And that's, in a way, that's kind of... You're trying to bring that. That's back. my chronology. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's what I tell people. Like that's that's my chronology. That's where I come from. Right. right you know, right. I I was too young to really be an active participant 
in the in 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 for some of that stretch. Yeah, but I I do date back. I have credits that date back into the nineties. Yeah, I have relationships with rappers and with musicians that date back well into the nineties. So I was there. You know, it's a lot of times you hear people try to define what nineties hip hop sounds like or what indie hip hop sounded like, and I'm like, hey. I was there. <laughs> right, I, right. I I can tell you about these things. Yeah. You know, I can tell you how people felt about certain music when it came out, and better or worse. And um, I, I love that the fact that I am tied to that stuff. I mean, you know, I I'm very proud of what I've been able to achieve in recent years. And yeah. there are certain periods where I'm like, oh, that was a that was a rough stretch, you know, <laughs> in, in the indie world, you know. But the '90s and and the early 2000s are definitely looked back on fondly for me. Yeah. Well, as far as your own career, like, do you have a release that you feel like is the best so far? I mean, I think as an artist, you're supposed to, well, at least I always feel like the last thing I did is the best thing I've done. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. arrogance or what, but I, you know, so I would say Halfway is the new record that I just put out. Yeah. And I feel like it's, some people that have reviewed it have said that it's better than some of my other stuff, and some people haven't. Uh, New York Telephone is a record that I'm very proud of, too, because that, that got a lot of attention and, and really, you know, stepped me up a notch I yeah. think, in the world of things. And I'm really happy and thankful for that. Um, you know, so those are the two records I would point to, you know, um, but certainly Halfway is a different kind of record because Halfway, it differs from New York Telephone in the fact that it was produced by one person, uh, Black Tokyo, and it was a collaboration between us. Uh, but also subject matter wise, it's it's very much more of a heavier record. Mm. Um, Near Telephone was sort of me. It wasn't a retrospective record. Near Telephone for me, that was a record of me trying to understand my current times by using the lens of myself from what we've actually been talking about as a person that came up in New York in the nineties. Yeah, like. I reference some things that happened back then on that record, but for the most part, I'm talking about the way I feel now, but with that context on it, because I've, you know, from now and then. Halfway is a little bit more of a direct concept where it's really about mortality and realizing your own mortality and getting to a point where you start to take life a lot more seriously. Um, you start to consider things a little bit more. You know, you, you have to really go out there and grab those opportunities that are there mm. because you're not guaranteed that they're going to be there tomorrow or that you'll be there tomorrow. Um, so that that's obviously that's a heavier tone. But I think that what I tried to do with the record, I didn't want to make a record that was about death. I wanted to make a record that... Um, was about life as much as that yeah and um you know so there's lighter songs like pipe dreams on there that are just kind of me really sort of joking around about different weird ideas that i've come up with over the years of directions i could have went mm. you know i mean i've always been a person sort of like as an artistic mind that i want to do everything all the time you know i just i want to do this i want to quit everything and and open a thrift store you know, it's right, like, right. you know, I, I want to do everything. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about mortality and the realization of it is you realize that there are certain things that you will not have time to do. Yeah. As much as you respect whatever it might be and you want to try to emulate whatever that is, there just might not be time because you are better suited to just, for me right now, I'm better suited to just make my albums and keep my head down, go on tours and shut the fuck up about 
making collages. You know what I mean? Like, right. Or, or whatever other the side art is. You it's know, it's like, like a escape fantasy or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's always for me. I mean, my whole life is a pipe dream. It's a whole fucking escape <laughs> fantasy. It's all right. like, man, if I could only get here, I could, I could, I could do this. I could do this art thing full time if I could just get my payouts to be this much higher than they are now. Yeah. You know, it's it's always like this scheme. You know, and that's sort of you know something that's familial to me but you know that's that's where i'm at so do, uh, this is maybe like a self-serving question because i've been thinking about a lot of the same shit but do you feel like you have you've come to some kind of like resolution with that kind of thing on mortality yeah not like i mean the end is not cool i mean we're all gonna die yeah but <laughs> no do you, i guess i've noticed myself and a lot of people my age like it's like we start to feel extra bummed about it like now for some reason (laughs) yeah i mean i i can't imagine how you know i don't know i guess there's a certain bliss that grows in turn in talking to sometimes um either watching interviews with or talking to actual um elderly folks yeah Um, it depends on the person it goes person to person but I think there is a certain amount of maybe bliss and understanding, you know, that that what your legacy is at a certain point, mm. and and it becomes a lot easier to carry out certain things on a more direct way instead of just having this vast amount of things that you could possibly do someday. You know, right. when you're 21, the world is your oyster. Right. You right. know, you could be living in New Zealand in your head, you know, at 21. Right. Doing, right. you know, doing something outrageous. Yeah. You know? Whereas when you get older, you start to realize like there are there are certain things that you are not, like I said you're not going to do, and yeah. there's some there's some quiet that comes from that. You yeah. Know, where it's like okay, this is what I really want my footprint to be. Um, I want it to be a, a good catalog of of diverse, but um, you know, uh, music that interacts with each other. You yeah. Know I mean, it's not totally all over the place, but also challenges the listener in different ways and different pl- in different time periods and hopefully capturing errors of where I'm where my head is at you know? yeah like I, I like to do records sort of quick um quick meaning eight nine months of a process because I like it to capture that snapshot of that moment in time yeah because I have found at times when I have done records that have taken two three four years it just it you just start to lose it gets thinner and thinner, totally. and, thinner and thinner and you start to lose the, the real theme yeah you know? I also think if you take too long, well, maybe not. You were saying earlier you, you're totally down with taking a couple of years. But like, sitting next. <laughs> yeah, <Yes>. guys. <laughs> but like, for myself, I find that the longer you work on something, after say a year for me, it will keep getting better because you keep working, but it'll get better in the tiniest fractions. Yeah. Where you like. Well, it's also over time. Like, here's the thing. This is what I, what I think you're what I think you're saying is I think from my experience when you're in your mid 20s and you're you're starting to still feel it out yes like it might you know when you start a song at I'm just throwing out random ages here but if you start a song at 24 by the time you're 26 you may have had other life experiences other musical experiences that if you took those two years to wait the song will be better by the time you're 26. Mm. Whereas once you're in your 30s or in your late 20s or, you know, if you're just really dope, you know, no matter what age you are, if you have 
a certain amount of talent and a certain amount of experience, time won't change anything. It just becomes noodling because you, you've already done something dope on day one because you're good enough to do it on day one. Right. You know, right. when you're when I was coming up, I wasn't good enough. To, you know, I was recording demos at Ozone. You know, I wasn't good enough to do something on day one. It had to be tinkered with. Right, right, right. But you have to go through that process to get to the other side of it. Yeah. You know, you, you know. And there are different processes. I'll just wait on that just once, uh, maybe twice. Um, yeah, man, it's for me and my experience with making songs. And after talking about NASA, I sit, NASA sat in for mine, for his height zone world. Um, yeah, it's like the way that I'll do shit is I'll edit the song and I'll worry about it for four months. And then I'll get in the booth and it'll be done in two and a half minutes. You know right, I mean? right. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, that's the way it'll, it'll it'll work out. Like I'm glad I got that full few months of worrying in before. Right. <laughs> right. I'm a big I'm a big believer because I I I tend to overthink a lot of things in life in general. And I've gotten to the point where I'm I'm very comfortable in the recording studio, and I'm very comfortable. That's like my space. That's I own that space because I've been in there for 20 years, whether for other people's sessions or my own. And um, I'm very much sort of like a, I kind of make fun of myself. I think I did this when we were working on the churn stuff. I'm like the hippie, freaked out producer. Like I'm like, oh fuck. Is that the beat we're supposed to be working on? All right, here it is. It's just like, you know, we were talking earlier about the, the Churn record, which is a record that me and um, Brzezowski are working on. Um, you know, my approach for that record is wake up at 9 o'clock in the morning and make a beat and wait for Brizzo to wake up about 10.30 and, and start writing immediately. Yeah. And then when the song is done written, set up the mic and record the song. Because, you know, it's about capturing that, again, it's about capturing that moment. Yeah. You know, if I sit around and futz around with lyrics and concepts and shit, it's not real anymore. Mm. It's, it's contrived for me. You right, know, right. It's, it's like all of a sudden it gets into a matter of like, well, I really want to write a song about this. And it's not about what just happened. You know, it's it's about trying to reach to something that's out there instead of reaching to something that's in here. Yeah. Inside you, yeah. You know? How did this, uh, I hope I'm saying the name right, Yule Prog, mm -hmm. how did yeah. that come about? Yule Prog came about because I wanted to do a show in New York in 2007. And the timing was that it would be in December. And this, the financial situation was that I figured out that it would make a lot of sense to have a large bill because then all those people would bring... A couple of people because none of us in 2007 had shit so like if i could get 13 acts to bring five people each i had the start of a crowd before i had to even start promoting and that's how i started doing the show now the way it became yule prog is i i then thought about like okay i need a hook like some kind of weird name or something and yeah I was like you, uh, you know. I was um, I was super into like the whole concept of progressive hip hop and comparing it to progressive rock because I came up, you know, really enjoying progressive rock a lot. And I was like, this is perfect. I've already been talking about progressive hip hop and Uncommon Records and Yule Prog, you know, Yule Log, whatever. Yeah. And uh, and that's how that that's how that show um, started. And then the next year, um, you know, Billy Woods and Anton from from Backwood Studios got involved. And that became a partnership. And then either a year later or two years later, um, and Breakups and Reservoir Sound Womb got involved. And the three entities have been putting on the show 
uh, now, you know, we just did the ninth one. That's um, awesome. Man. You know, we'll have uh, probably one more. <laughs> we'll get to the tenth one, and then we'll figure out what 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 our lives are about. Um, you know, getting to ten has been really important to me. I think. Uh, yeah. I, I can't remember anyone else doing ten annual hip hop shows in New yeah. York City. Uh, there, there were. Um, there, were, there are some people that have done some annual shows. I don't know if anyone's hit 10 years, at least not in underground hip-hop. I have no idea. But, you know, the, the shows, like, they do consistently hold weight in terms of turnout, you know? Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't ever catch, like, wild fluctuations of turnout. Like, it's, it's, it's not the same people, but it's about the same amount of people every year, and that amount of people is, is good and sufficient enough to, to do this nine years in a row. So that's yeah. something, you know? That's really awesome. And one more thing, I know you guys got to get back, but like, um, I when when did you start leaving New York and touring around? Uh, you know, I started touring with this guy. Nice. Um, in poor man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I have. Um, I I I started touring in 2012. Right. Okay. It was 2012. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we did a sh- uh, a tour called um, "Them Boys Ain't Right." Right, which is a quote from King of the Hill, which was a show that I was super into at the time. And like, you know, it's funny, like there are things that um that I was like super experienced with in twenty twelve, like coming up with names for tours and getting cool art, but there were things that I was terrible at, like performing. And so, you know, like I I I I sort of in a way like I stunted my career on stage is a little bit stunted in terms of like I didn't tour in, a tw- in my 20s. I mean, I was 34 or 33 when I did tour in 2012 for the first time. Um, you know, so I, I I sort of had to get through this, this kind of shit of like being a guy who was somewhat well known to some people for a long time but had never toured before. Right. And I had to kind of break that wall down and I'm still like perfecting and, and trying to get as good as I can. And that's like why I keep touring. This is my eighth run uh, right now, you know, yeah. and, and that's just, you know, 2012 happened. I really didn't do another run until very late in 2013. Uh, we did the Uncommon Karma tour with the Karma kids, but really it was Sarcasmo and, and um, Ungugi from the Karma kids. And, um, we did that run, and then since then, you know, from that's seven tours from November of 2013 until December of 2015. So in two years, I've been out seven times because that's I'm, crazy. you know, I'm just about it. You yeah, know, like yeah. I, I'm about. Conti- I, I I always try to challenge myself where I'm like, well, fuck, like I keep doing this three times a year. How good can I get? Yeah, I want to see what what that looks like. Yeah. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm I'm addicted to the idea of finding that out. Totally. And um, that's why I keep doing it. And, you know, I, I really promised myself, you know, when I shifted gears with Uncommon Records, um, I kind of shifted to from an A&R label that signed artists. Um, and I was basically a label owner that made music at that time. And I wanted to shift gears when I got to about 34, 35. I started to rethink a lot of things in my life and how much content I was putting out there and that it might be time for me to step up and do something. Um, no disrespect to anyone else, but like right. I, I needed to do something. I felt it inside of me to do more, you know, and there wasn't time. You can only do so much in a day. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm on the phones and on the email promoting 
anyone's record, even a record that I'm involved with, it's not making music. And right, there's, right. Like I said, you, you can't... I spent a lot of time sort of burning the candle at both ends, you know, where it was like I'm, I'm this producer and this rapper, and, and I'm also like a guy who's got to promote a record every two months. Right. And it just became too much for me. And I, sure. I, like I said, I went from being a label owner that made music to being a musician that had a label. And that's sort of how I see it. And at that point, when I, when I made that shift with the label... Um, I, I reached out and told everybody what I was doing, and, you know, I would say 99% was support, you know, yeah. um, for that decision. And, you know, it, it comes a time where, you know, everybody has to kind of make their own way, you know yeah. what I mean? And a lot of the guys that were on the label had already made their own way before they came to the label. Right. So it wasn't, it was just like, all right, cool, man, peace. Right, right. We're going to keep doing what we do, too. We'll meet up with you in a couple years. And yeah. It was dope, you know, and like, you know, so I've gone on and done a record with Gaja from Acid Rain, okay. you know, after putting out their record. And, yeah. you know, I'm still doing music with Short Fuse right now. When I get back from this tour, I'm going to mix down the record that we're doing together. Um, you know, and there's a lot of other people that are still connected, too, um, yeah. from the earlier days. And um, I, I, like I said, I guess the point of what I'm saying is um, I, I really wanted to promise myself at that point that I would try to tour three times a year and try to do an album about once a year. A legitimate yeah, yeah. album, you know, not like whatever, just right, fun, right. you know, like yeah. a full fully processed thought, you know, hopefully with with vinyl, but you know, we'll see. You know, yeah, my last yeah. two records have had vinyl. You know, I tell people like people I saw somebody on Twitter the other day thanking an artist for pressing his stuff on vinyl. And I, I wrote I was like, don't thank an artist for pressing his stuff on on vinyl that's up to you like it's it's your it's the consumer's choice as to whether i can press vinyl or not yeah yeah what happened with new york telephone led me to the belief that i could press up halfway right and not lose my shirt right you know if new york telephone didn't do what it did there would be no halfway vinyl right if halfway vinyl doesn't do well like it's pre-ordering now and it's doing pretty well but if it ultimately is not a success, there won't be vinyl of the next record. That's right, just the right, way right. that this thing works. Yeah. And sometimes consumers don't get that. But that's what I want to do. You know, that's yeah. the goal. It's not like you're like sitting there like, what would be the realest format? Well, <laughs> I, I think some people, I just think that some people are like very privileged in their music buying ways. They're just like, yeah. well, I only buy vinyl. Right, right. What do you mean? NASA's only got a digital album. That's not a real album. It's like, well, no, it's actually a real album. I, yeah. I made it. I spent nine months making it. I mixed it. I mastered it. It's an album. It's, you know, if there's a demand for it to be on vinyl, it'll happen. Yeah. You know? And if there's not, then it won't happen. And that's the way that works. It's not like I'm purposefully uh, pressing vinyl or not pressing vinyl. I right. love vinyl. Yeah. I have a huge record collection. I love the idea of people listening to my music on vinyl. I love the artwork, the way it lays out, everything. Everything that everyone else loves about vinyl. But, you know, I'm not going to live a fantasy either. You right, know? right. I just have a bunch of my own shit hanging on my own fucking wall. You know, right, Boxes right, right. of records and shit. That's crazy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> As I point to my unopened boxes of height CDs. <laughs> I've got lots of... Dude, there is no greater, like, heartache than... Taking hundreds of your own CDs and throwing them in a trash can. I've like, heard. I, I mean, I, I've, I've, you know, I had a lot of uh, speaking of the presents. Um, I had a lot of present CDs left around, and you know, I moved out of my last apartment into my home, and uh, 
man, just bags and bags and bags and bags of CDs, yeah. like thousands of them, you know, and because at that time you had to press like a couple thousand to, to right, for right. them to do it. And um, I even did some late, lately and my building has a, it's a garbage chute. Um, so you go to the garbage room. I have like a big bag with all my CDs and you can hear it go down the chute. <laughs> Right on the fucking ground, you know? <laughs> it's like the ultimate, like, wow, this is awesome. This is, you know, this is... Because, you know, nobody's going to buy your shit from 10 years ago. That's just the way it works. Right. You know, you've been around long enough. I mean, I, I still have some of those CDs for sale, and I yeah. kept a, a modest amount in my in my merch section, and I'm not going to throw any more, because I have, like, 30 or 40 copies of each of those CDs. Yeah. That's enough for a while. But, um, you know, you have to get up to that point, too, where you've done it long enough where you're like, wow, like... Some of this music's actually really dated. <laughs> like, I actually yeah. need to move on and, like, really, really get people to, you know, I mean, I could talk about the presence all day. There's only going to be some people that knew me back then that are going to know what I'm talking about. Right, right. So, you know, a lot of people listening to this might be informed that I was in a group. They might not even have any idea that I was doing that. So, uh, that's pretty, it's cool. I yeah. Mean, I, I like that. Spinning back to mortality, I mean, that's cool. I also think, think the... Like, you can confuse people with too many CDs. Yes, like, absolutely. Like, I always put all my CDs out. I'm thinking of not doing that anymore at shows. Just be like, this is the newest one. Yeah. And I have the other ones in a box if you want them or something. I, I have a couple old CDs that I keep in my bag. Yeah. In case somebody comes up and is like, oh, you don't have any CDs? And I'll, like, bring those out. Right. Because yeah. I haven't pressed a CD in a couple years. Like, yeah. None of my last three albums that came out in the last three years are on CD. Yeah. Um, I have tapes, <laughs> and yeah. I have uh, some vinyl, and I have uh, T-shirts with my digital downloads on them. Yeah. And, you know, if you can't grasp that concept, then you're probably not ready to be a fan of mine anyway. So right, right. that's, you know, totally fine. But, yeah, too much is too much. I mean, I, I say that as a guy that's on tour right now for five days with three styles of T-shirts, one record and three different cassettes. T-shirts are but, different, though. You know, they are different yeah. because not you're not going to please everybody with one shirt. Yeah, you know, like some people, are, yeah, it's too black or it's too colorful. Yeah, and so I have a mix yeah. of a few. You know, I feel like there's ultimately no. I I guess I'm I'm real like anti-fashion in a way, but I feel like <laughs> there's ultimately no purpose behind a shirt. Besides, all I want to do is make money. Right, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, shirts like, are, are reasonably cheap to produce and still get high quality out of and yeah. make a decent profit margin off of. And, and then people, you know, I try to make my shirts with my name on it and stuff, and I don't ever get to wear them because it's stupid to wear a shirt <laughs> with your own name on it. But uh, no, that's a bad name. That's different. He's got a vinyl cape shirt on. He, if you show up with a Brzezowski shirt on stage at any point during the next four days, and I'll look at you a little sideways. But um, it's like a name tag and shit. Where's Brzezowski? He's got his, he's got his fucking name on his shirt. Where's he at? He's hiding over there. You can't, you can't miss him. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it becomes a, a conversation thing, hopefully, for people like, what the fuck is Uncommon NASA? And then the person says, oh, it's this guy. I went yeah. to see his show last week, you know, whatever. And then and that, that works. You know? Yeah. Exactly. And they get to look fresh, too. <laughs> yeah, they got fresh gear, son. <laughs> Fam. Um, anything else you want to mention before we wrap it up? Um, nah, I think that's it. I think I, I've talked to you all, all your ears bloody. Um, Loved it. Shout out to Height uh, for for having me on. I, I appreciate it, and um, you know, come see me whenever I come to your town. Yes, and uh, go check out Halfway. Thanks once again, to Uncommon NASA. See you next week. <laughs>